0: Welcome, the church. Glad that you are here. Welcome to all of our locations, our online and television audience. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. The ushers will get those to you. If you have your Bible, would you kindly take it out? Let's hold it up and say this out loud together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. I see Toby over there. He turned 70 yesterday, right? Give him a great big happy birthday, Toby. Amen, everybody. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We are going to John chapter number five, John chapter number five, verse number one. The scripture says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, having five porches in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty eight years when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. He said to him, Do you want to be made??" Well, the sick man answered, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the waters start up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked walked. Today we are continuing in our series, He Amazes Me, where we are looking at the seven miracle signs in the gospel of John. And today I want to minister to you from the subject, there is no God like Jehovah. Can you say amen? Amen. Nobody like him in all the earth. You can search far wide. You won't find anybody like him. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for your anointing and thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach And to preach the word of God effectively to every single heart. Transform people today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we know in the book of John, we've already walked through two of the first three miracles. The first miracle is where he turned water into wine. And when he turned water into wine, he demonstrated that he was God over the molecules of matter. That no matter what it is, God can manipulate it. God is the one who created matter. And so if you have cancer cells, God can manipulate that. Whatever it is that your condition is, the first miracle was to show us that he is the God over the molecules of matter. In the second miracle, where he healed the nobleman's son, who was 27 miles away, he showed us or demonstrated to us that he was the God over time and space, that he's not limited to being in one location at one particular time that he can speak a word here and send it 27 miles away, 2,700 miles away, 27,000 miles away, 27 million miles away. He's not bound by time and space. He doesn't live in the four dimensions that we are accustomed to. God is greater than any of those things. And in the second miracle, he proved that to us and demonstrated his mastery over these things. But when we come to the third miracle where he is going to heal this man who is at the pool of Bethesda, you're going to see that he is demonstrating that there is no God like him, that he stands alone all by himself, that he has no rival, that he has no equal, that he had no predecessor, that he will have no successor, that he's God all by himself. And he's a jealous God. He doesn't want us to put anybody else in that place or on that pedestal. He likes to hold that title all by himself. He's mighty in every way. He's glorious in every way. He's true in every way. He's full of grace in every way. And you're going to see in this miracle today that he is saying there's no other God like me. And so as we come to the text, the setting of the text really is imperative to us understanding some of the principles that we need to grasp in order that we might be amazed by him. If you'll notice, it says that he entered in by the sheep gate or there was a pole that was by the sheep gate. And so this pole, because of its proximity to the sheep gate, we know was very close to the temple. The temple or the sheep gate was right alongside the temple. And so this pool was somewhere in that vicinity. It was known in the Hebrew tongue as Bethesda which means house of mercy, but that wasn't its original name. The original name was the Virgin's well. And the reason why it was called the Virgin's well is because the priesthood in those days discovered that there was a well right outside the temple that would 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 go off every now and again and would create a jacuzzi like effect with the waters. And so they got this brilliant idea. And the idea was that they would build a pool around it. And so they they built this big pool around it and and the pool was like a spa for them. And uh, the priesthood in those days was very, very powerful. They were like the aristocrats of the day, the the wealthy of the day. And so they made this little spa area that just so they could hang out and um, they built walls around it, big, big giant walls around it um, so that nobody else would know they were trying to protect it. But word got out amongst the priesthood. And so more and more came. And so as more and more came, they had to start building these porches because you can't stay in the pool all day. You got to come in out of the sun and hang out underneath the shade. And, you know, sip your virgin pina colada right virgin pina colada is the operative word right there and so they were just hanging out doing their thing and and this was a beautiful place it was ornate it was it was it was lined with marble it was extravagant in every way and it got so popular that they built as we saw in the text five different But by the time we come to John chapter 5, something has transpired. There are no more aristocrats there. There are no more wealthy people there. Now the, the sick, the multitudes of the infirm, the blind, the halt, the withered, the lame, they're lying there. And what has happened is over time, this virgin's well stopped firing. And it wouldn't constantly be working anymore. And so it had, the rich had no use for it anymore. The priesthood had no use for it. So they abandoned it and it became dilapidated. But something would happen every now and again. And the well would just go off. And, and so a, a bunch of these blind, halt, sick, diseased, withered, infirm people, they, they came into this, in, in, this sick and in infirm place, this diseased area, mosquitoes all over and all that kind of stuff. It was, it was nasty. And they were there because they had a belief and the belief was, that at a certain season an angel of the lord would come down and trouble the waters and that the first one in would be healed of whatever disease that they had but but the significance of the way the place is laid out tells us some things that we need to understand if we're ever going to see god amaze us and the first one is that we need to pick the right porch I want you to notice what it says here in verse number two. It says, Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these, in these porches, lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. They were hanging out. In the shade under the porches and these porches provided them with protection while they were waiting so they they didn't get scorched by the sun. And the way God explained to me the significance of porches and picking our right porches was by the way that I grew up. How many of you know God talks to us based on what we are familiar with? So that's why to, to David, he was a shepherd. And the only reason why he was a shepherd to David is because David understood the fullness of what that meant. And David understood the care that that meant and the protection that that gave him. And so when God spoke this to me, I understood what he meant because I grew up in Staten Island. And in Staten Island, we didn't have a porch per se. We had a stoop. And a stoop was like a six by four slab of concrete out in front of the house, and we lived in a duplex, and so our stoop was 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 eight by twelve, because four times six twice is eight by twelve. And so our, our stoop was eight by twelve, and everybody hung out there. They all, the whole block was stoops, and and if you would walk down the block in the evening time or on a Saturday or a Sunday, you would find that everybody was out on their front stoop, and the adults were drinking coffee on their front stoop, and the neighbors would stop by, and we they 'd talk and they 'd just do life together, and the kids would play on the lawn that was by the stoop, but it really wasn 't a lawn; it was like a ten by ten patch of grass right i mean you didn 't have big property back in those days, and so everybody used to hang out there. We used to do life together and get to know each other, all that kind of stuff well well, from that, the Lord said to me, these paralyzed people, these lame people these these blind people, they were all hanging out together. In this, in these porches, in other words, they were doing life together, and because of their belief, which was that only the first one in the water would be healed of whatever disease they have, you can imagine that as they all made their way back from the pool to the porch and got there, the stories of disappointment that they would tell one another. The discouragement that would be on their face and how they would say, well, I guess we'll try again next season and and, and we really thought this was our moment and we really thought this was our time. But, you know, this is only for some, some of the time. Be careful about anybody that ever gives you a doctrine that says what Jesus paid for on the cross is only for some, some of the time. Be careful of that doctrine because it sneaks in every now and again. Of course, everybody believes that that forgiveness of sin is for everybody all of the time. But then there are others who will stretch what Jesus did on the cross. Because I don't know about you, but I'm grateful he didn't just go to the cross for our sins, but he went to the cross for our sicknesses as well. And how many of you know it's not for some, some of the time. Everything he did on the cross was for everybody all of the time. But nevertheless, when they were at their porches... They were commiserating with one another. And what was happening is their hopes and their dreams were, were following their conversation. Be careful what comes out of your mouth. Your hopes and your dreams will follow your conversation. You will infect your soul and you will infect your head by the words that come out of your mouth. And so here they are and they're on this porch and this porch is a place where their faith is having holes poked in it. This, this porch is a place where they are being, their discouragement is being fed. And what God told me to tell you is what is most important 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 if you are ever going to see God amaze you is to be careful about the porches that you pick in life. You cannot hang around people who are going to discourage your faith. You can't invite people into your life who are going to poke holes in what you believe. You can't invite people into your life who are going to tell you that God only does these things some of the time for some people. You need to get around people who understand what Jesus paid for on that cross, that it is for everybody all of the time. You need to pick your porch in the place where you're encouraged. And when you read the scriptures, you'll find out that Jesus was very protective about the porch. You might remember the story of Jairus in the Bible where Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, came to Jesus. He said, can you come? My daughter is lying at the point of death. And Jesus said, okay, I'll come. And as Jesus was going, the Bible said that the servants from the house came and told him to not bother the master anymore because his daughter was dead. In Mark chapter number 5, and by the way, when somebody died in Bible times, mourners would actually come over. They were actually sometimes paid mourners. Imagine that, paying people to make you depressed. Somebody, you get it for free in your life. When you call them people up, you start commiserating, you get in depression for free. Can I tell you something? The only thing stupid of them paying for it to people to make you depressed is getting it for free in your life. Amen. And so they would pay for it and they'd come over and the house was full of mourners. And notice what happened by the time Jesus get there. It says, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. He, he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John Peter James and John the brother of James and then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw the tumult and those that wept and wailed loudly and when he came in he said to them why make this commotion and weep the child is not dead but sleeping now can I just ask you a question that nothing to do with my sermon was the child dead or not yes well why did Jesus say just sleeping See, we'd have to understand there's a spiritual principle in life and the Bible tells us we are to call those things that be as though they were. Let me say it again. Those things that be as though they were, right? It's not that the lack that you're not recognizing reality. You're recognizing a higher reality. The higher reality of the things that be is the truth of God's word that's supposed to be the way they are. You see, and the world understands that when you name something, what you do is you create an identity. Oh, come on, somebody. You create an identity in that person or that thing. And that's why what the world does, try to tag people with names so that their identity can be switched. Can I tell you something? That if you want to see your reality switched in your life, don't call things that are as though they are. Call things that be as though they were. Come on, somebody. That's Jesus, by the way. And he says, she's not dead, she sleeps. And they ridiculed him. Notice when you operate in the principles of faith, not everybody understands. By the way, if, if you need the accolades of people, oftentimes you will be talked out of operating in the principles of faith. They ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, this kind of throws away the timid Jesus, doesn't it? They started to ridicule. The way I picture this is Jesus is like, get out. Get up! You, you need to get out of here. You need to get out of. Here. He when he put them all outside, he took the father and the mother and uh, of the child and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and entered where the child was lying. Notice that when Jesus was about ready to amaze somebody, Jesus had to protect the porch. He had to make sure that the environment around the situation didn't destroy faith, but rather that it built up his faith. Protect your porch. You can't invite anybody into your porch. You only got to invite people into your porch that are going to feed your fate. I heard this little story, this fable about an eagle who thought it was a chicken. Why are you all looking at me in that tone of voice? What's wrong with an eagle thinking it's a chicken? Just say, I'm going to let you think about that for just a moment. When the eagle was very small, he fell from the safety of the nest. A chicken farmer found the eagle, brought him to the farm, raised him in a chicken coop amongst other chickens. And the eagle grew up doing what chickens do, living like a chicken was doing, and believing that it was a chicken. And this naturalist found out, heard about this eagle that was acting like a chicken. So the naturalist said, i got to go see this for myself. And the naturalist went over to the farm, and and he he observed it, and he was surprised to see that indeed the eagle was pecking around like a chicken. And, and he looked at the farmer, he said, that eagle was not meant for that. That eagle wasn't designed for that. That eagle wasn't created for that. Can I can I prove to you that that is not a chicken, that's an eagle? And the farmer said, you can try whatever you want, but that's a chicken. And so the naturalist said, okay, will you let me? He said, sure, sure. And so he put the, the eagle up on a, on, a, on a fence. And he looked at the eagle and he said, you are an eagle fly. And the eagle looked down at the other chickens, looked down at the chicken coop, looked at the farmer, just jumped right down, started pecking around again. The farmer said, I told you that was a chicken. The naturalist says, can I come back tomorrow? Can I come back tomorrow? So he came back tomorrow, and sure enough, this time he said, I'm going to take him a little higher. And he brought him up to the top of the farmhouse. And he looked at him, and he said, you are a chicken fly. You are an eagle fly. And the eagle looked down at all the chickens pecking. He looked down to where his home was. He looked down to all where his familiar surroundings was, everything that he was conditioned his whole life to believe. And he jumped down, and he started pecking with the chickens again. And the farmer looked down and said, I told you. That was a chicken. He said, no, that's an eagle. He said, can I come back one more time tomorrow? Can I come back one more time? The, the, the farmer said, sure, you can come back, but that's a chicken. Next day he said, come on, we're getting in the a, in a car. He took the eagle with the farmer in the car. Drove way past where the chicken coop was. Drove to a point where the chicken coop wasn't in sight no more. Drove up to a high mountain cliff somewhere. Put the eagle on a high mountain cliff. The eagle was looking around. eagle couldn't see the chicken coop no more. Couldn't see how the chickens were acting no more. And he said, you are an eagle, fly eagle. And that eagle took off with a screech and became everything that it was destined to be. What's the moral of the story? There's a lot of morals in that story. Number one, if you were made to be something, that's what you are. believe whatever you want to believe, but if you've been made to be something, that's what you are. Come on, somebody say amen, right? If you are made to be a man, you're a man. If you are made to be a woman, you're a woman. And by the way, why is it that when we change somebody, we take away the parts that make them who they are? Why just leave the parts on then? Because we understand that a man got certain parts and a woman got certain parts. But that's not my point. There's a lot of morals to the story. I'll save that for I think I'm going to do a series next called, called True Virtue where we'll talk about some of these things. But anyway, what this shows us is that the environment that we are in oftentimes can shape what we believe The environment that we are in can shape so many things about us, shape our mindset, it shapes our belief system, it shapes who we think we are, how we perceive the world. I was reading something the other day that the number of people, number of uh, people in our society that are identifying as all of the letters keeps doubling with every generation. Keeps doubling with every generation. And people say, well, that's because there's proof. No, that's not. What it's proof of is that the environment has changed. The environment has changed. And now we're telling people that all this kind of stuff is okay. Listen to me. God loves everybody. Everybody, Jesus died for everybody. But we've got to preach what the word of God has to say because there are too many people being infected in their head. (laughs) What he's trying to tell us is that our environment Affects our porch. Choose your porch properly. If you want to see God move in your life, you cannot be around people who are going to tear down your faith. You cannot, cannot be put around people that could have put boundaries on what God has said. You've got to understand that what God has said is the truth, and you've got to renew your mind to the truth. Can you say amen? amen. Second thing you need to do is you need to pick the right position. Notice number uh, verse number six. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Seems like a cruel question to a man who's been in that condition for 38 years. Do you want to be made well? Uh, Duh. Like I'm hanging out here. Why, Why do you think I'm here for? Here's what I've understood about God is God views desire differently than we do. We view desire as just something that we 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 have uh, a liking for. This is what we prefer. God views desire as something that is evidenced by action. Uh oh. See, see, there are some people that say they want certain things, but they don't really want it because they're not willing to pay the price in order to have it. See, God views it differently. And so he looked at this man and he said, do you want to be made whole? And and what I understand about God is this, that asking in Christ always precedes amazing. Then, whenever God asks a question, he's asking the question not because he needs information. How many of you know God is omniscient? He needs no information. You cannot inform God of anything that he does not know. He knows the beginning from the end, right? He knows everything there is about you. He knows you're rising up and you're laying down. Your days are ordered. He can see them before they even happen in your life. So God's not looking for information. God is looking to set you up. And so he asks a question, do you want to be made whole because asking always Precedes amazing. Before he amazed a crowd of 5,000, he asked, how many loaves of bread do you have? Before he multiplied the widow's food in the famine he asked, "What do you have in your hand?" Before he showed up as an earthquake, as a wind, as a fire and a still small voice for Elijah, "Yes, what are you doing here?" Before healing, healing the lame man carried by his four friends, Jesus asked a question, "Which is easier, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say this to this man, rise up and walk?" Before calming the storm, he said to his disciples, "Why is it that you have no faith?" He said, and "Why are you so afraid?" Anytime Jesus was ready to amaze, he asked a question. And the reason why Jesus asked a question is because Jesus understood the power of position. And oftentimes what happens is questions cause you to think and hopefully if they are the right questions, reposition yourself. Because in order to receive, you've got to position yourself correctly. And by the way, let me just say this. It's not only when God asks... That he amazes. But when we ask, God amazes us. So that's why you'll find in the Bible in John chapter or Matthew chapter number seven verse seven and eight. Asking it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives. Anyone who seeks finds. Anyone who knocks the door is opened unto them. Over and over again in scriptures you find this. John fourteen verse thirteen. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. First John five fourteen and fifteen. If we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us and if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we ask of him. Psalm chapter 2 verse number 8, ask of me and I will give you the heathen for your inheritance and the other most parts of the earth I will give you. What is he telling us? That asking always precedes. And by the way, please don't ask God only for small things. Small asking is a sign of selfishness. Small asking is a sign of selfishness. Now that goes counterintuitive, doesn't it? Right? Imagine a kid, he wants a cookie, he said, and he takes them all. Can I have them all? Can I have them all? you like, tsk, selfish little kid. But see, when it comes to God, God wants us to think beyond ourselves. Let me talk to this group over here, right here. God, God wants us to think beyond ourselves. And what happens if any time, when we ask small, it means that we are limiting our request to what God can do for us instead of what God can do through us. And, and I'm at the point in my life where I like to be a through person rather than a just for me person. Amen. I, I want to see God do stuff through me. And so when we ask, it, re- it produces amazing but I want you to notice that Jesus is, is asking him questions, I believe, to reposition him because the man has been in the same physical condition for 38 years. Now, if I was this guy, I'm going to call him Matt because he's lying there. It's funny. I don't care what y'all say. He's lying there for 38 years in that same position. He has the advantage of seeing the moving of the waters for 38 years. The Bible said at a certain season. In other words, he could tell the seasons because he's watched it for 38 years. I could tell the seasons. That's why y'all surprised me. Because I look out today and I saw a little bit of rain and the season of the rain told me church going to be empty today. Because I know the saints. Because can I just be honest with you? Oh, don't get mad at me. God called you a sheep. I'm not just... I'm the. I, I know the saints. The saints it got to be perfect weather for the saints to come to church. I can't go out today. Can't sleep in today. Got nothing better to do today. I guess I'll go to church. Yeah. Matt is there 38 years. He knows when the angel comes down and troubles the water. So he could have had the advantage. I mean, he didn't have the advantage in the natural because his condition was he was lame. If somebody had a withered hand, they could still run. If somebody was blind, they could still run. He was at a disadvantage for what they believed, which was first one in gets healed, right? And so he tried, because the Bible tells, he said to Jesus, every time I try, somebody beats me because I have nobody to help me. But here's what I'm wondering about, Matt. You've been there 38 years. After watching a few seasons go by, why didn't you time the season? Why didn't you know if it was going to happen August 15th or middle of August to start moving middle of July? Everybody might have thought you were crazy, but guess what? You were positioning yourself. Why didn't you get close enough to the water that when the water stirred, you didn't have to come. All you had to do is roll in. And here's what I've realized about us. We don't position ourselves to receive. We believe God from way back over here. And then God starts to move in our life. And by the time we get there, it's too late. Here's what God said. If you really want God to move in your life, you need to pick the right position. You need to to position yourself around the things of God. You need to position yourself in the house of God, not just when the weather's good and bad, but every single time the doors are open. Why? You're positioning yourself. You need to position yourself before an open heaven. How do you do that? You bring your tithe to the storehouse. Why? So that you can receive the financial increase that God has for you. You need to position yourself for God to do something good in your life. How do I do that? By doing something good for somebody else. You need to position yourself in order to be forgiven. How do you do that? Forgiven forgiving other people, you need to position yourself. And there's a lot of people who, who the question needs to be asked, do you really want it? Because from the way it looks over here, I don't think you do. From the way it looks over here, it, it looks like you're just expecting God to do it, but you're not positioning yourself for it. And by the way, if you don't think positioning yourself Is a key to seeing God amaze you? Look at the Bible. God told Elijah to go to the book called Cherith. And he said, and there I will command ravens to bring you bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. What if Elijah said, nah, I want to go by the Red Sea? You know what would have happened? The ravens would have been dropping his bread and his meat over at the brook called Cherith every single morning and evening, and Elijah would have been all the way over here doing like most Christians do. Well, I don't understand why God doesn't do nothing for me because God said over here. He told Elijah, he said, get, when, the, when the raven stopped bringing the food, he said, okay, Elijah, time to reposition. Now I want you to go to a widow woman from Zarephath's house, and I have commanded her to sustain me. What if Elijah said, too far of a trip? Position yourself. Everywhere in the scripture, God told Abraham, go over up Isaac on the top of Mount Moriah. What if Abraham said, that's too much of a distance, I'll just do it in my backyard. He would have missed the ram that was caught in the thicket and would have slowed his son. Why? you got to position yourself. If my words abide in you and he abide in me, then you shall ask whatever you will and it shall be given you. Position yourself. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Position yourself. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and heal their land and answer their prayers. Position yourself. It's all about position. Jesus looked at this man. And he knew this guy was not in the right position, both physically, but more importantly, mentally. The mental position is the key position. The enemy knows it. I spent eight months last year teaching you about renewing your mind. Eight months. Eight months. Why? It was, it was eight months of prophetic word. Say, so what do you mean, pastor? Because I'm trying to prepare you for what the world's got for you We are in the battle Of a repositioning of the mind The world understands it and so what they are doing is they are using every mechanism possible in order to reposition the mind. The news media is constantly repositioning the mind over and over. The education system is constantly reconditioning the mind. That's why I told you before, you got to watch your porch. Not just your porch, but please watch the porches of your children. Fight for your kids. Fight for your kids. Fight for them. Uh, sorry. No. My kid is not participating in all the pronouns. Uh, sorry, won't be here for that assignment. Uh, can't happen. Position, position yourself. The world is coming after the mindset of our society. Their hope is that by the time the next generation arises, the truth of the word of God will be replaced by a lying mindset. Jesus saw that the man's mind. What is it? What was his position? His mental position was only one. Only the first one in could get healed. Jesus had to reposition that because the opposite of faith or belief is not unbelief, it's false belief. The opposite of belief is not just unbelief, it's false belief because a lie accepted as true will affect you the same way or as if it were true. And so you could even scan the brain of an individual that believes a lie And their brain will give evidence to that lie. That is not because they were created to believe that lie. It's because they have adapted that lie and practiced that lie. And whenever you adapt a lie and practice a lie, your brain neuroplasticity will form itself around your belief system. So don't you dare try to confuse people by telling them we did brain scans on so-and-so. And even their brain says that because you... You know you're lying, everybody, because you understand that the brain is malleable. Tell that jump to somebody who doesn't know. His mind was formulated around this belief. And Jesus had to reset his mind because as a person thinks in their heart, so is he. As a person thinks in his heart, So is he. How do we reposition our mind? Number one, you need to unlearn what you know. Now, not the truth that you know, but sadly more people know stuff that is not true than is true. So you need to unlearn some of the things that you know. What the man knew, even though it wasn't truth, was only the first one in would be healed. Of whatever disease they had. His faith was limited by what he knew. And what he knew was the byproduct of what he lived. How many times has life conditioned us to believe something, to know something that stands in the way of seeing God move? I know marriage doesn't work because it didn't work for my parents. I know no men are good because when I was in college. I know all women are crazy because the last one I dated... I know God doesn't answer prayer Because when I was a kid I prayed I know good breaks don't happen for me Because I was already passed over for the promotion three times I know religion is fake Because the last church I was in I'm tired of people With this church hurt nonsense Why did you really get hurt by church Because the preacher said something you didn't like Because the preacher preached from the word of God And it bothered you That's not church hurt that's you rejecting the voice of the Holy Spirit. Come on, somebody. Why, Why do you have church hurt? Because the preacher told you don't act like that. That's not church hurt. That's called good pastoring. That's called helping you to be everything that God has called you to be. I better pull back because I'm ready to go places right now. We reconditioned our minds around things that we think are true but aren't. And they limit our faith. And so what we need to do is we need to unlearn some things. And we need to replace what we know with the truth of the word of God. With God, all things are possible. Second way you need to reposition your mind is you need to get rid of assumptions. An assumption is what often stands in the way of the miracles that God wants to have for us. We assume things on God. For instance, we assume the way God is going to do things the way God's going to give me a financial miracle is I'm going to go home and there's going to be a million dollar check in the mail. Some people believe that. And so because they believe that, their their faith is limited. So instead of exercising the gifts God gave them and putting their hand to something, because the Bible says whatever you put your hand to will prosper, their faith is limited by the expectation that they that God is going to deliver financial miracle their way. I believe the way God's going to heal my marriage is one day I'm going to come home, and I'm going to walk in the door, and my spouse is going to be on their knee, and they're going to grab me by the hands, and they're going to tell me I was just so wrong. I am so sorry that I did all these things. You had nothing to do with it. It's been all me, and all of a sudden, they are going to become the spouse of our dreams. That's what we assume and because we assume that it blocks us from humbling ourselves and saying will you forgive me for what I have done wrong well we assume on God our job is not to assume how God is going to deliver our job is to believe until God delivers come on somebody Let God do it his way. Get rid of the assumptions. Most miracles happen to people who make the fewest assumptions. Joshua didn't assume the sun couldn't stand still. Elijah didn't assume an axe head couldn't float. Mary didn't assume a a virgin couldn't get pregnant. And Peter didn't assume he couldn't walk on water. You know, when you're a child, you ask 125 questions a day. That's the average. I I don't know. I never counted, but I read that somewhere. I find it a little bit of an exaggeration, but the point you'll get. 125 questions. Anybody ever get asked a lot of questions by a kid? It's annoying, ain't it? It's annoying. Like, are we there yet? No. Two minutes later, are we there yet? Still no. Two minutes later, are we there yet? No. By the fourth time, you're like, no! Right? By the way, God gets annoyed by us us asking him for the same thing over and over again, too. He gets annoyed. You know why? Because when you ask somebody for the same thing multiple times, it means you didn't believe what they said to begin with. The Bible says that when you pray, believe that you receive and you shall have it. When you pray, believe that you receive and you shall have it. When you pray, believe that you receive it. God, can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? Can I have this? Same thing over and over again. If God already told you he was going to get it to you, now just thank God that it's on its way. But by the time you become an adult... You only ask six questions a day. Why? Somewhere between adolescence and adulthood, we start assuming a lot of things and we lose the wonder of exploring the possibilities of what can be. Last way we reposition our mind is we have to have the courage to swing again. This man struck out 38 years in a row. 38 years in a row. He kept swinging and missing, swinging and missing, swinging and missing. He was mentally stuck in a position of defeat because he kept swinging and missing. I don't believe in prayer anymore because I swung and missed. I don't believe in miracles anymore because I swung and missed. I don't believe in church anymore because it didn't work out for me. I don't believe in religion anymore because my parents were unbearable zealots. God is saying you have to have the courage to swing again. Last year, I I helped coach the basketball team here, and I'm the assistant coach. Um, and the head coach is a great guy. He's a friend of mine. Fantastic. Wait till you see our team next year. We're going to be like the running rebels next year. But anyway, it's nine minutes. Nine, uh, we're down by nine. We're 43 seconds left in the game. Now, if you know anything about basketball, you're down by nine with 43 seconds left in the game. You're going to lose. He said, let's just empty the bench, put all the subs in. I said, no, let's go down swinging. He looked at me. I said, no, no, no. no. Let's just go down swinging. We came back. We tied it at the buzzer. We won by 12 in overtime. Why? Because we were going down swinging. Can I talk to somebody today? Go down swinging. Don't don't give up. Go down swinging. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is these all died in faith. They went down swinging. Your job is not to deliver the miracle. Your job is to believe the miracle. Every day of your life, swing, 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 swing. This could be your day today. Ty Cobb was probably the greatest hitter of all time. He had a lifetime 367 batting average. Imagine if he said, well, I fail 63.3% of the time, so I'm going to stop swinging. Because if you have a 367 batting average, you're failing 63.3% of, of the time. But he kept swinging. He was asked a question. He, they asked him, He said, hey, if you if you played today, what would you bat? He said, ah, about maybe 310, 315. They said, why? Is that because of all the travel, the curveballs and the sliders and all the stuff that they didn't have back in your day? He said, no, cause I'm 72. Keep swinging somebody. Look at your neighbor and say, keep swinging. Come on. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how young you are. Doesn't matter how many times you prayed and it doesn't happen. Keep swinging. You got to reposition your mind. Can I close this? Number three, third thing I want to share with you is if you're going to see God amaze you, you need to pick the right person. I told you that the pool of Bethesda was a place where the sick and the infirmed hung out. Its trip rating, by the way, was low. That was funny. I don't care what you all say. It was just too deep. (laughs) They would hang out there waiting for the moving of the water. Notice what verse 4 says. It says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whosoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease they have. Now, all scholars agree that this verse was not in the original text. It was added. There are certain things in the Bible that are added for clarity, you know. Well, this kind of seems weird why are all these, these sick people waiting there. So, but somebody put this in for clarity so we don't know that this is actually what they believed. Matter of fact, I did a little research and, and I'm of the persuasion that what they actually believed was that, that the god Asclepius, who is Asclepius? Well, he was the son of Apollo, Apollos, he, and, who is known, and he was known for the to be the god of healing. His mythical daughters, Asclepius's, included the goddesses Hygieia and Panacea, where we get the words hygiene and penicillin from. And by the way, why am I telling you is because the empire that this happened in was the Roman Empire. And if you go back to historical times in the Roman Empire, they had a million gods. There were gods all over the place. And so from the Roman point of view, Jesus was just another god. They would never got mad at Jesus had it not been for the Jews. The Jews were the ones that got mad at Jesus because to them, this is another guy claiming to be a savior. And so what happened is these people, these sick, these halt, these withered, these infirm, these diseased people went to this overrun place because it became a shrine or a place of worship for the god Asclepius. And As matter of fact, when they unearthed the pool of Bethesda, many many years ago what they found out is there were etchings of a snake on a pole and the sign of Asclepius was a snake on a pole by the way that is the sign of modern day medicine isn't it? a snake on a pole but you know what Moses said to to what God said to Moses in the wilderness he said if you want to see everybody get healed lift up a snake on a pole why? because Jesus was the snake on the pole See y'all, y'all just think I, I shame Jesus in some way because I called him a snake. No, when he went to the cross, he became a curse on a tree for us. And what God wanted us to know is that when he became the curse on the tree, he paid for your healing and my healing. But these folks were waiting for Asclepius to stir the waters every now and again and his benevolence healed just one and so Jesus walked into this place where people were worshiping a God other than him and believed that he was the God of healing and Jesus walked in there and said who there is taking my title who came here to say they are who I am see y'all are laying here and you are the hardest case you've been here 38 years and in 38 years what has Asclepius done for you but I want you to know in 38 seconds I can do what he couldn't do in 38 years because I am the God that healeth thee ain't nobody else and notice what he did he walked in through the sheep gate because Asclepius' deal was every now and again only one Jesus' deal was I'm going through the sheep gate why? because that's where the sheep entered in to get sacrificed in the temple in other words it was the blood of the sheep that would be sacrificed for the sins of the people Jesus walked in there and he said, "Time for me to tell you what I did on the what I'm going to do on the cross. I'm going to shed my blood. And when I shed my blood on that cross, healing will not be provided for some some of the time, but it will be provided for all all of the time. Don't you ever go after a God who is a every now and again God. He is a for whosoever will God. And notice what he did. He goes in here not just to take his title back, but also to let us know that we need to anchor our faith to his grace." because he picks a man who, by the way, was a Jew. If you read the text, who was worshiping a foreign God, he didn't deserve to be healed. He didn't pick the right porch. He didn't pick the right position. He hadn't picked the right person, but Jesus went in there anyway. Why? Because it is by grace that you are saved through faith. It is not of yourself that any man should boast. And that day Jesus went in there and he went in there with one mission and the mission was this, that you and I would know that we serve a God of grace. What does that mean? Grace means God's riches at Christ's expense. It's everything that God wants to do for you because of what Jesus has already done for you. Grace is the favor of God. It literally means God wants And what he's telling us is that in our life, we have to pick the right God. Not the Jesus who doesn't want to. Not the Jesus who just sometimes does. But the God who wants to bless. The God who wants to heal. The God who wants to pour out his favor. The God who wants to restore. The God who wants to mend. The God who wants to fix. He said you need to choose the right Jesus. He is the God of all grace. And when you choose the right Jesus, you realize realize there is no God like Jehovah, that he has no rival, there's no God like Jehovah, that he has no equal, there's no God like Jehovah, that he stands alone all by himself, there is no God like Jehovah, that he has no predecessor, he'll have no successor, because there's no God like Jehovah, come on, stand to your feet, let's shout it out.